0: Hey everyone, this is Carlos Morales and this is the Truth Over Comfort podcast, what follows is an interview with Stefan Kinsella on the nature of the non-aggression principle, libertarian ethics and how they relate to children, an incredibly important topic in regards to libertarianism and obviously the work that I do with child welfare and child advocacy. Show updates will be going on at least once a week from now on. There's been a lot of delays due to technicalities with iTunes. And all the YouTube videos, of course, can be found at truthovercomfort.net. We're referencing a number of different statistics and articles, which can all be found on the website. I'm also working on a book presently, which will have a Kickstarter going up pretty soon as it turns out to take a lot of time and money in order to write the definitive work on child protective services. As always, this is a donation-based show, so uh, please throw in a few shekels in order to keep this thing going. Thank you so much for listening.
1: You are listening to Truth Over Comfort Podcast with Carlos Morales and Taryn Harris, brought to you by the Blue Ridge Liberty Project. Hi,
0: everyone. This is the Truth Over Comfort podcast found at truthovercomfort.net. And today I have noted libertarian Stefan Kinsella on the line. How are you doing today, Stefan?
1: I am doing very well. I would prefer, um, instead of being called noted, to be called um, uh, uh, infamous.
0: Infamous. Uh, philosophical <laughs> King, uh, Stefan <Silver> Kinsella. <laughs> So in today's show, we're going to be discussing actually a 2006 article that was recently sent to me called How We Come to Own Ourselves, and more broadly, the topic of the non-aggression principle is how it applies to kids. A subject that wasn't really being hit upon as far as the libertarian movement until Stephen Molyneux rather controversially started defending the rights of the most offenseless group of individuals, i.e. children, on Freedom and Radio back in 2005. Now, before we start up on that, I want to do kind of consequentialist, utilitarian view on spanking by going through some of the facts of spanking. So I'm going to go ahead and go through some studies. The definition of spanking used in the following studies is the open-handed striking of a child on the buttocks or some other extremity. Not with the goal of causing physical harm, but with the goal of changing a behavior through negative reinforcement. I think most people agree with that definition. Presently, spanking is the most commonly done practice to curb unfavorable behavior in the U.S., with over 90% of American families report having you spanking as a means of discipline at one time or another. A recent study, which is the first real-time study done on spanking, 40 mothers signed up to be recorded in their home. When studying their interactions, it was found that the children were spanked on average 937 times a year. Longitudinal international questionnaire and clinical studies have demonstrated that children who are spanked are more likely to commit domestic violence, more likely to become drug addicts, domestic abusers, uh, develop mental health issues, including depression, antisocial personality disorder, borderline personality disorder, and a number of others. They're less likely to become successful in any parameter of life outside of maybe selling drugs or going to jail because children who are spanked are more likely to be in prison for a variety of reasons already discussed so the facts are in, and there's a 93% agreement on studies that show that spanking is harmful, which is a higher percentage than studies that show that smoking is harmful. Not great odds. stated that sp- uh, spanking, once the facts are shown from a consequentialist, psychological, or objectivist understanding, is shown to be an irrational expression that conveys disrespect to the highest amount. The this statement that you don't trust their mind enough to negotiate, you assuming hitting the child will change their mind. It's a logic issue. Uh, someone could say that I have a bias here, which is partially true. Kind of a bias towards the facts and not towards the tribalistic opinions that run our present society. And I have a bias, kind of, towards an empathetic understanding of kids, as that is my background of being a child advocate. But what I want to do today is to delve into the philosophical question outside of just the consequentialist perspective which gets us into Stepakets Ellis' article that states, it starts, uh, the primary social evil over time is the lack of respect for self-ownership rights. It is what underlies both private crime and institutionalized crime perpetrated by the state. It continues with the breakdown of lock-in homesteading first-use principles and then gets to the discussion of parents as first owners. Now, in the article, you start with a variety of views on parents as owners and then you begin to explain the idea that there are a form of positive rights that are given to the child by the very nature of talking of taking the responsibility of bringing the child into the world, i.e. shelter, food, clothing, and I would contend a fostering of key emotions as would be beneficial for themselves and society as a whole. Your argument for these positive rights starts with an analogy. If someone is drowning in a lake, then you don't have to help them, but if you throw them into a lake, you do have to help them lest you be convicted of homicide." And I know that was a lengthy introduction, but uh, could you extrapolate on that a bit?
1: Yeah, I'd be happy to, and glad to be here. Thanks for having me on. Um, and I'm, I think I'm generally with you on your overall concern and orientation towards children's rights. But uh, look, I will say something. I am a uh, 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 on the technical side. I'm more of a scientist-minded person, engineer, ba- engineer background, and I'm also a dualist of the Misesian uh, type. So, which means I think that there's a, a differentiation between how we do science in the natural sciences the causal sciences and in the normative sciences. Yeah. Um, which means I'm a little bit skeptical of some of these studies. Um, look, I think it's wrong to murder someone. I think it's wrong to bully someone or rape someone or assault someone or to spank someone. Uh, even if the studies don't show that there's some kind of correlation. Um, um, so I'm a little skeptical of the studies that try to over-exaggerate the consequences of spanking. Spanking, if it's wrong, is wrong because it's aggression, and it's wrong because it's wrong in and of itself. It's not wrong because it might affect the person's uh, later life. Um, now, so, so let, let, let me turn to one thing that um, you, you made me think of. The common argument you will hear all the time from libertarians and others who defend some form of spanking is, well, I was spanked, and I turned out okay, right? Now, I think we need to think about that. It's That's a bad argument for a number of reasons. Um, um, well, first of all, they may be wrong. They may be messed up, and they don't know it, <laughs> although I'm I'm not a fan of over-psychologizing. Um, But even if you turn out fine, I mean there there may be women that are rape victims that have lead successful lives. So you may find a woman who says, I was raped, and I turned out okay. Okay? You can probably find some women who would say that, and they may try to say that. They may want to say that. They may want to put it behind them and to prove that this guy only has so much power over them, whatever. And I admire that. I respect that but does that mean that the rape wasn't wrong then if, if her life turned out? Okay. So the argument is just fallacious, right? Just because spanking doesn't permanently scar you doesn't mean it's wrong. Um, but would you agree that philosophy has to be both consequentialist along with
0: being deontological as far as having any real basis in the real world? Yes.
1: And I do think that there's a tendency for, um, for the, for the wrong approach to parenting to lead to bad results. And, um, uh, So one danger of spanking is that it it just – it's not mild – I mean, I was spanked a few dozen times mildly as a child, and I think I turned out okay. I don't resent my parents for it. I don't do it to my child because I think I've learned more. I personally think spanking is just the um, um, – it's a result of ignorance. right? It's the simple approach to discipline. A parent thinks they need to discipline the child and the easiest approach is to administer physical force. They don't think about the long-term consequences. They don't think about ethically what it really means. They were taught that this was okay. They know that they were spanked a few times and they turned out okay in their minds, and so they spank. To my mind, the right approach is a humanist approach, a modern approach, a cosmopolitan approach, where we look at psychology, we look at child development, we think about long-term effects, we treat children as full I won't say full adults. We treat them as, sh- as full citizens or full uh, full human beings with full rights. They're different in their development stage, but that's the fundamental thing, which, by the way, is one reason I love um, the Montessori approach. And um, uh, of, of, uh, you mentioned my article, How We Come to Own Ourselves, which is at my website. But another article that might be of relevance here and of interest to some of the uh, the viewers would be my article on… Montessori and peace. And I go into that there. You can just Google my name, Kinsella Montessori and peace. And uh, I have some resources there about the different child discipline techniques I've read. There's basically three and they're all compatible with the Montessori approach, which is a child centered approach, which to my mind is a libertarian compatible approach because it treats the child as a self owner, as a full member of the community, right? They have a different stage of life that they're dealing with. But you bring this child into the world on purpose, presumably, hopefully, optimally, right? And the child has certain needs, and when they act in certain ways, it's usually natural. It's usually not that they're being, quote, bad. So when you try to discipline them by punishment, you're both committing aggression and you're approaching the problem in the wrong way. So... Let me give a quick example. Uh, uh, the, the three approaches I like is called – one's called Love and Logic by Foster and Klein. One's called um, Positive Discipline, uh, and that's by, uh, I think, Jane Nelson. And there's another one that's related by Kv- Catherine Cavols, K-V-K-V-O-L-S. All these books basically look at children for what they are, and they they don't treat them like animals. And they – none of them Here, – here's the modern American – so-called compassionate approach i don't believe in spanking i'm just going to put my child in time out well from the montessori approach or from the positive discipline approach time out is punishment too it's not it's not corporal punishment but you're trying to discipline your child by administering pain to the child right because they hate being in time out they hate it right so it's pain so you're trying to train them to be a human by administering pain  … … as a negative consequence of, of actions you don't like. And to my mind, it's not as bad as spanking, but it's almost as bad. Uh, it's, it's not effective, put it that way. So in my child discipline techniques, I followed these methods as, as good as I could. Um, and um, I did not – not only did I never – I didn't spank my child. I didn't put him in timeout. Instead, what we would use was something called uh, the calm down spot. When my child was one or two or th- two or three or four, and he would have a uh, an issue, right, a rage or a temper, or he couldn't understand something, he would go to the calm down spot. And you, it's, it's like the timeout idea, but you notice the purpose is not punitive. You tell the child gently, lovingly, well, you're having an issue with life right now. Come sit down over here, collect your thoughts when you're ready to rejoin us, and – sit at the table or do whatever we’re trying to do in the way people are supposed to act, you’re free to do that. which just it's, 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 so it's not punitive at all. So you’re not punishing them for how they are because it’s a natural stage of their development. So there’s a lot of things like this and, and people can read into it. And that to me that’s a holistic approach which is completely complementary to the libertarian approach and also to nonviolent communication, uh, to voluntary, peaceful parenting. All these kind of things go together very harmoniously um, in my view I've I've kind of rambled on here but that's my that's my take on it and I've loved it I only have one child but I've loved it and um, uh, I've seen the benefits of it and I've seen I won't say the tragedy but I've seen other parents just hitting it with a hammer just like you will listen to me or I will spank you and I understand where they're coming from right but It's just not the way you approach things. It's not how you deal with people. And this is one of the good things about Molyneux. I'm not quite as much of a psychologizer as he is. But he has a good argument in one of his uh, talks where he says, um, you know, the beginning of life is like the end of life. You know, you're helpless when you're an infant and also when you're a feeble old man. And could you really imagine your 50 year old son when you're in a wheelchair at 90? when you poop your pants slapping you in the face because you pooped your pants because you're 90 years old and you're at the end of your life yeah yeah is that the right way to respond lovingly to someone that you care about and that you're supposed to help take care of it just makes no no sense and if you think about that it kind of puts some perspective on how we should treat children
0: Absolutely. And, you know, when you're, when you're bringing up that difference, I think that's that's a really good idea. And it actually brought me into kind of your article as a whole, which was there was, a, there was a statement in there in regards to trying to figure out when a child is actually developed. Once developed, you're the only one who can control your consciousness and you're the final arbiter of decisions. According to Hoppe and, and yourself, this self-ownership is developmental and the parent can rightfully claim the child's trustee as long as the child is physically unable to run away and say no. And I think a criticism that I have is that that line seems a bit arbitrary in the sense that a developmentally disabled person may be capable of that, but that doesn't mean that they're capable of much else. Severely mm-hmm. autistic kids, for example, mm-hmm. I, I don't think that argument can be made rationally that if a kid can say no, they are suddenly able to be as capable of all the actions of adults. For instance, I know you wouldn't make the argument that just because a kid is both saying no and running away, that therefore he's allowed to say, have sex with a 40-year-old man.
1: Mm-hmm. So here, here's my take on that. First of all, let me let me say something. I don't pretend to be um, a philosophy or a morals expert on this particular issue. The issue of um, rights— are, It's a damn hard subject. It, it is a hard subject, and, and not to get on a tangent, but I've come to think that there are certain issues in libertarianism which I think we should start regarding as intractable. Um, … like abortion, for example, so certain issues that we have to realize that we've tried for 40 years to figure these things out, and even people that are fellow rational atheist anarcho-capitalists still debate certain fundamental things. We have to, we have to figure if that has an implication. Like, does that mean something? Does that mean that if, if we just can't figure this out, what does it mean? If we, do we just say this issue is intractable? And if it's intractable, what does that mean? Now, I think that, like on abortion, let's say, the default position has to be we have to leave it alone, has to be decentralized in a certain sense, even if you disagree, things like that. Um, I think also the same with child-rearing to a certain point. um, Even if you and I would agree that certain actions by a parent are tantamount to abuse or even aggression, it's still within the locus of a family unit. And there has to be a pretty high threshold that outsiders would have to cross to interfere or to intervene. Now, maybe it's lower for family members, and that's the way communities work, right? Um, but as a matter of pure libertarian theory, I'm not sure we can decide everything um, um, from the get-go. Yeah. But on, on, the, on the theoretical issue that you're, you're talking about, I think we need to distinguish a couple of things. Number one um, is – um, you, you use the word arbitrary. I don't think arbitrary is necessarily correct. I think it's more of a gray area or a continuum yeah. problem. Because sometimes we know the right answer for here, and we know the right answer for here, but there is a continuum between. And there can be debate about where to draw the line between. And that, I think, at least describes part of what we're talking about here. And that is which sentient, uh, so which animals, which creatures deserve. The respect of rights and when human beings uh, acquire the capacity of rights. Yeah. Go ahead. ahead?
0: No, I mean, so it is is quite kind of blurry when it comes to kids, as as you're already bringing up, and there are kind of clear cases on either side of those. So small children clearly not able to autonomously act in many domains, and there's an article by Tamar Shapiro that kind of brings this up. We must refrain from acting in ways which hinder children's development as deliberators. We should not, for example, force children to rely on adult authority on matters that they are capable of deciding for themselves. In other words, you should foster the child's ability to choose and understand reality by allowing them to make decisions that they can interpret, like, you know, which toy or which color yeah. of shirt you want, yeah. but not on things like cancer treatment. There's a, It's kind of like the difference between unschooling and yeah. unparenting.
1: Well, so and, – and I think that's a – that's that, that sounds like a reasonable perspective. What what I sense as a a smug parent? Montessori parent a, – a, I was going to say a smug Montessori parent because Montessorians are like – it's like a little cult, right? We, we, <laughs> so I, I, I apologize for keep going back to this, but I gravitated towards it for a reason. Um, a lot of the things you're saying and that homeschoolers and unschoolers say um, are sort of like they're reinventing the wheel of what Montessori figured out in 1906, literally. Yeah. I mean we've been developing this for 100-plus years now, and I think that that is one of the best approaches towards the child. Now, it's helpful if it's informed by the libertarian mentality, which I've tried to do. Um, um, so I think that's all, that's all well and good. Now, let, let's go back to the, the Hoppe and Rothbardian libertarian issue about the child saying no. Um, I don't think like Hoppe, for example, himself is laying out a full theory of rights about children and animals. Um, He sketches out his approach to it. He's drawing upon some of Rothbard's insights, and he's stating something about something that's fairly uncontroversial, I think. Yeah. And that is that when the child does say no… And he says it in a meaningful way, he's basically acquired self ownership in the sense that you have to respect his rights as a sentient being with rights. Now, this is another gray area. I mean, if you have a seven year old or a five year old who says no and he wants to run away, and I hate to pull, pull the I'm a parent card, Trump card, you know, but I mean, when you, have, when you actually have a child, you start seeing some practical things. It's just not realistic to say that because of libertarian ethics, you should let the seven-year-old run away into the wilderness. It's just not going to happen. No. Those parents will not let that happen. You will block the ch- kid from running away. Now, ideally, you would never reach, reach that situation in the first place because you've been a good parent and the child understands the relationship, and it's a gradually organically growing thing. right? That's the best way to do it. But on occasion, you might need to use force to keep someone from hurting themselves in a way they don't understand yeah. whatever. This is really not that controversial. Well, there, there um, was – go, go ahead. But what I think is more interesting and more controversial is the issue of rights, um, And uh, and to me, I don't claim to have the answers, but I think the answers can only come from a consistent foundation of rights – and property rights and libertarian principles that you have thought about ahead of time and you have to get those straight in your head first okay and so so one thing i would say is this and i've talked to say walter block about it we've i'm good friends with walter we've talked about this and i've talked to other people about this what is the and so the first thing is to recognize that rights have to arise in human bodies and in external resources for different reasons and in different ways and if you don't recognize that then you're going to go into – you're going to spin into confusion on this issue. So, for example, if you understand the Lockean idea that we come to own resources by homesteading them because it's an unowned thing that someone uses, they have a better claim to it because they mix their labor with it, etc., that's fine, but that's for external resources. If you use that idea and you analogize it to your body, which a lot of libertarians do, and they say, well, I own – … the car, or I own the land because I homesteaded it, and that's also why I own my body. I homesteaded it. So by that paradigm, what they're imagining is you have a woman who's pregnant. She has a fetus inside of her. The fetus has no rights because it's not rational yet enough or independent yet enough to have rights, whatever their argument is. And so it's basically protoplasm or matter that's physically owned by the mother. It's basically a property right of the mother…  … Or maybe of the mother and the father, depending upon your your, your perspective. But it's owned by someone else, and then at some day it wakes up and it homesteads its body. Okay, the the problem with that way of looking at it, which I think is incorrect, the problem is that um, it views the child as a slave until day one, and then on day one the child becomes a, a partial or a complete self-owner, right? And if the child becomes a slave, a, a, a self-owner on day one, that means that the child basically stole his body from his mother because the mother was the owner. So why did – how did the child get the, the ownership of the, of the child's body? If you're going to be consistent and try to treat body ownership, self-ownership the same way as we treat ownership of external resources, you end up with a system of paternalistic or maternalistic slavery. Yeah. Right? Where every parent owns their child. And they're basically a slave of their parent even until they're 18 years old or whatever until the until the parent releases them. And yeah. I don't think we want to agree to that. I don't agree with that. Um, mm-hmm. So my view is that there's a different touchstone of rights for ownership of the body, and that is what Hoppe points out, and that is what I focused on in that article that you mentioned in the first place. And I don't want to… Toot my horn or say this article is the most important thing in the world or very important, but I will say that when I thought about this issue, I went to Hoppe and Rothbard and Mises, which to my mind are the three most important thinkers in this area, and I found that Hoppe had written something in German, which I can't read German, but Guido Holtzmann or Hoppe, one of them told me. I did touch on this one issue that you're looking into in this German manuscript. And I got my friend Guido to transcribe it for me. And I have a quote of that in there. It's a transcribed quote, uh, a translated quote. And what Hoppe focused on there, which I think is one of his most important insights, which is amazing that it's not even in English until I translated it. It's only in his previous German writings is he distinguishes between the way we come to own our bodies and the way we come to own external resources. And there's a link The issue is there's a direct link that's an objective link that everyone can recognize, which is what gives you an objectively better claim than other people. But in the case of external resources, it's first using the thing right, or getting it by contract, an objective verbal contract from someone else. But in the case of your body, the objective link is your ability to control your body. I want to move my hand up. I move it up. By doing these things, I demonstrate I'm the one with the connection to this body. Whatever I am, you don't have to be an atheist. You don't have to be a religious person. Whatever your view is, this is not a religious thing. You don't have to believe in the soul. It doesn't have any implications about religious or spiritual views. The thing is, conceptually, there's a distinction between the person, the I, the me, the legal personality, the thing that has the rights and the body. Maybe they're the same thing. Maybe they're connected. I don't know. I don't care. That's not the point. The point is we can conceptually and linguistically distinguish these things, right? So I can move my hand this way. You can't move it. Yes. So because I have this direct control, and this is what Hoppe's insight, this is the link that I have that gives me a prima facie, (laughs) presumptive best case to my body. Okay? So that's the insight. So to my mind, this is the libertarian framework we have to apply. These are the fundamental principles we have to get straight in our mind then we can do the hard work of refining them, applying them to particular cases, narrowing them down. And some of them we may not be able to do in our armchairs just as uh, deductivist, rationalist philosophers. Some of them we may have to wait to see what custom, tradition, practical use uh, uh, develop in. Um, Now, my guess is that what's gonna happen and what has happened and what what would happen and what should happen is that we would attribute to children at a certain point, I think, my, my view is this, in in the middle of pregnancy, maybe late-term pregnancy, we're gonna attribute rights to the fetus, which means that if you have a late-term abortion, it's considered murder. However, because of practical considerations, you can't enforce that. You, jurisdiction has to be with the family or with the yeah, mother.
0: Yeah, no, when, so, it, when, it comes to, when it comes to the issue of abortion, what people need to seem to understand is the issue of pragmatism. I mean, if you go in a hot air balloon while you're pregnant and therefore you are guilty of murder yes. because you end up accidentally having an issue with the fetus, yes. you have to check people's menstruation cycles for every single yes. two weeks. You
1: essentially have to make strap women down and to make them yes. breeders for a, lot, for yeah. a little bit. That That's kind of my view. So I think that my personal view is that if you ever have an abortion from day one, like from the day you have a fertilized egg, if you do it on purpose, it's kind of seedy and immoral, and it gets increasingly more immoral and seedy and as the as as fetus develops. And at a certain point, it, it reaches a point where you could say it's tantamount to murder, although it's not the type of action that the, the community can really enforce because of the issues you just mentioned. Once the baby is born, you can really treat it as murder or infanticide. Okay, But it's still – infanticide is viewed as differently than homicide because the infant is different than a full-grown human of capacity. So the way I view it is some libertarians say that the parent of a one-year-old baby or a six-month-old baby is the owner of the baby. I don't think that's true at all. I think the baby is a self-owner from the moment it has rights, which is even before birth I believe, but let's say at least from birth. The baby is a self-owner. However, it has an incapacity. It doesn't have the capacity to make decisions for itself, just like if you had a car accident and you were knocked out for a couple of days and found on the side of the road, some stranger found you and they wanted to perform surgery on you to save your life. They would have to make an assumption about what you would want, right, and they're doing that on your presumptive consent. I think that's what a parent does, and I think any society, any community, any legal system would – … have a a default presumption that the parent, having the natural connection to the child, having created the child, having positive obligations to the child, as you and I discussed, um, is the one that can speak on behalf of the child. So the parent can make decisions for the child not because they own the child, but because we presume the child would grant that power to that that caretaker… And and that's why if the parent abuses that right by abusing the child, then they lose that presumption, and someone else can take the child, a relative or an adoptee or whatever.
0: uh, There was an interesting um, remark that Stefan Monony made uh, on this in in an article he wrote called The Non-Aggression Principle and Banking. Uh, So to the question of preventing harm, kind of like what we were talking about, there seems to be a bit of wiggle room in terms of the situation. (laughs) So, as you brought up earlier, kind of, uh, you know, say a blind man is about to walk into a train. Yes. It could be considered antithetical to the NP to grab him, but most likely this person would thank you afterwards. And this opens up another point. The initiation of force does not violate the non-aggression principle if the following conditions are met. It is an unforeseeable crisis. The initiation of force is the only possible remedy, i.e., grabbing that person to prevent something from happening. The victim would almost certainly give his consent in the moment if it were possible the victim gives consent after the fact. So in the case of nurturing a baby, it is an unforeseeable crisis if you just let just let it sit there and don't feed it at all. Uh, the initiation of force is the only possible remedy if you consider, I don't know, lifting up a baby and putting it on the teeth. Well, the victim would almost certainly give his consent in the moment if it were possible because well it can't really talk, but it's probably glad that it's not dead. And the victim, you know, is probably going to be giving its consent afterwards.
1: I I don't disagree with all that except I disagree that you need to go there. In other words, that is the framework you would use when we agree that there's something that's apparently aggression. Well, I we guess to-
0: I guess we we could though go from it from when it comes to spanking, right? So as far as unforeseeable. Uh, well, hold issue- on, hold on. Um, no, go ahead.
1: Before we get to spanking, let me just say okay. I think if you physically manipulate a, a nine-month-old infant's body to change his diapers, to put him in the crib, to do whatever you're doing, that is actually not aggression. So you don't need to come up with these okay. set of yeah. excuses. I think the better way to look at it is that you are doing something that is naturally in this person's interest that is unable to make decisions explicitly for themselves, and you're doing it with their implicit consent. So I would say it's actually consented to implicitly and therefore, it's not aggression at all. It, it's a similar analysis, but it's, it's a subtle distinction. Yeah, but that's right. Co- now, when we come to spanking, I will say that I, I had a long telephone conversation with Stefan Molyneux after. Uh, weren't you at Liberty of the Pines? We, I think we. Yeah, we yeah, are. yeah. That's when we I first We were all there me. together. You, Stefan, and I were at Liberty and the Pines in, in yeah. Nacogdoches at uh, Stephen F. Austin University. Yeah. And afterwards, I. Called him and I told I, I tried to have a discussion with him about why I sympathized with his views on spanking, but I disagreed that it was aggression. And my argument at the time was, and he changed my mind by the way, which is why I'm getting to this. Um, my argument was that the parent has the guardian authority, and he's he the parent has the uh, presumed authority to make decisions on behalf of the child, which would include the right to consent to being spanked as a discipline measure if it was reasonable, right? If it was normal and reasonable and made sense. And so it's sort of an academic theoretical abstract argument. And he pretty much persuaded me that that might make sense abstractly, but basically it doesn't apply because spanking doesn't work, which I agree with this for the reasons I gave you earlier. Uh, You don't need to spank a child and therefore spanking is tantamount to child abuse. Now, one thing I was concerned about was that if you label even light spanking, light occasional spanking, as child abuse or aggression, that would be serve as a justification for removing the child from the parent. And I was leery of that consequence. And he persuaded me that that doesn't have to be a consequence because even if the parent commits a minor infraction against the child, it do- doesn't follow that you should remove the child from the parent and take them – give them to some other parents. And I agree with that too. So he alleviated my concern on that. So I'm pretty no. much of the view that spanking is a pretty much per se aggression, not spanking or physical force to stop them from going in front of the bus or physical danger. That's not punishment, I believe. That's different. I don't think that's a especially hard case. But spanking to me is an ineffective form of punishment, and I think it is basically aggression. Although I would say that the claims of psychological damage from mild spanking, I think, are exaggerated. And so it's only a minor aggression. But I still, I still oppose it. So that's, that's my take on, on the issue.
0: Well, as far as statistical analysis is concerned, what it seems to be is that the inclination for those things to occur, uh, as far as the, 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 the bad outcomes are dependent on how often it was occurring, which kind of shows that, that the, uh, the correlation and causation seem to be pretty tight there, but it just kind of depends on, on the interpretation as far as that is concerned. Um, but when you bring up the point of, um, you know, this, this is something that's been brought up a lot, and, and it has to do with, with, with the spiking issue, which is, well, if I hit a kid uh, because he jumped in front of a bus, isn't that okay? because it was an unforeseeable crisis and I just I just want to make sure I clear this up just in case there's no uh, confusion Uh, because spanking doesn't meet the requirements of the four points that are brought up uh, earlier as far as it being an unforeseeable crisis Well, removing the child from that particular station is what you're dealing with right there but spanking right afterwards is not if you're trying to prevent a kid from knocking over a pot of boiling soup first prevention would be obviously the key and if a child is in imminent danger and the parent is actually close enough to hit the parent is close enough to pursue nonviolent remedies to the situation. Furthermore, dangerous situations that are a result of the negligence of the parent do not excuse the results afterwards. So, you wouldn't—if I don't repair my failing brakes and this causes me to crash my car into a house, I obviously cannot blame the brakes uh, for that particular situation. True. Um,
1: yeah, I don't—I don't—I dis- don't disagree strongly with that, but I would say that as a kind of anally minded analytical engineer type or lawyer type, I don't know which one. I'm leery of people giving a list of things that are, that pretend to be exhaustive and when they don't give a reason for it. So you just listed four things. I don't know where you got that from or who, who the guy that came up with it got it from, but I, I'm just always leery of these ad hoc seriatim lists of things that are not shown to be- Well, I
0: think, I, th- I, th- I, think, I think what it's trying to do is to break down as far as initiation of aggression is concerned as regards the non-aggression principle in that particular case that we were discussing, where you're grabbing a person and preventing them from getting hit by a bus if they did not know it was going to occur. And I think yeah. that kind of allows well, for
1: I, I, I get that's what they're trying to do. I just don't know if they succeed because it's just a list of things that make sense, but... How do you know some of those aren't redundant with each other? How do you know that that's exhaustive? Maybe there's a fifth category. So yeah. I'm always leery of these axiomatic listings of things that are just written in a liberal arts kind of way, like I thought of A, B, C, and D. This is how I think. Um, but my, my, my main point would be this. Um, I don't think you need to even go to this category to justify um, – Uh, uh, using force to prevent a kid from getting his hand burned from a boiling pot of soup because it's not aggression in the first place. And the reason is because the action of the parent – remember, action is not the same as behavior. Behavior is just the motions of your body. Action is what a human body does aimed at a particular purpose. So there's always intentionality bound up with and informing the characterization of what an action is, right? If I I, I shoot a gun at you and I'm trying to shoot the guy behind you who's trying to kill you, then that's self-defense. But if I do the same behavior when I'm trying to kill you, that's an attempted murder. So behaviors can look the same, but the intentionality of the actor is what distinguishes them from each other. And by the same token, I believe that if you view the parent as the guardian of the child, as the presumptive, the, the presumptive spokesperson or agent of the child, the person who could speak on behalf of the child, we assume the parent is the one who should be presumed to be that person because there's a natural connection, and usually parents have their kids' best interest at heart, and usually you would assume the child of everyone in the world would want the parent of of themselves to be the one who has the, the authority to make decisions on their behalf. You know, if you're married and you have a heart attack and you have a wife and she has to make a decision about whether you have a certain type of surgery or a procedure, you want her to make the decision, not some random stranger in China. Right? Because, you, uh, because of a relationship. It's the same thing with children. Um, so I think that the reason why the parent can use force to stop the child from burning themselves is because everyone would assume that's a reasonable decision that the child would consent to. Okay, It's not abuse. It's not intended to harm the child. It's intended to protect the child. Um, that kind of action is not something the parent does that can be classified as abuse. I think, I think the reason
0: why, though, we try to talk about making these, these, these slight differences is because people arguing for state social welfare may make similar arguments. Like, well, you would have thanked us for this anyway, so therefore I'm allowed to do this particular
1: action. And I think well, that's why the qualifiers are kind of important. Well, so I, I don't, I don't totally disagree. I don't think that's a, I don't think that's a really uh, definitive debunking of this way of looking at it. Um, oh, wait, that, I don't
0: think, I don't think so either. It's just, it's, what, I'm just trying to, you know, codify and clarify. What, what, what you're
1: highlighting is the danger of this idea of the implicit contract, okay, idea, right? Which is the idea behind the social contract. Um, um, this issue only arises in the case of. Beings, whether they're animals or retarded people or comatose people or elderly people or incapacitated people or children, right? Basically, humans that are not normal adult functioning humans, people that are in a state of need, right? Or beings that are not the same as us. This issue only arises when they can't speak for themselves. If someone can speak for themselves, then you never need to go to the implicit idea. You don't need to guess what they would have agreed to. right? It's just like in a contract. If you and I have a contract and it's only two sentences long, Carlos agrees to pay Stefan $1,000. Stefan agrees to give Carlos good stuff in exchange. Very vague contract. right? Now, if later on we have a dispute about that, whether I gave you good stuff, whether you're entitled to my $1,000 or not, then the courts – the whoever we ask to resolve our dispute, they're going to have to make assumptions. What did they mean? What were they thinking? What would they have agreed to? Whatever. If we had had a 17-page contract explaining what good stuff meant, they wouldn't have to do that. They couldn't do that. By the same token, when the, when, the, when the Supreme Court interprets legislation, when any court interprets legislation, they don't look at the legislative history to look at the intent of the legislators unless the statute is ambiguous. If the statute is clear on its face, they have to apply it as written. They only go to the background stuff if they have to. Okay? It's the same thing with implicit consent or tacit consent, we sometimes call uh, a related notion. If someone explicitly says what they want in a contract or in a verbal uh, assertion, a verbal grant of permission or denial of permission, then that's the answer. That's it. You can't override that by saying, "Well, you really would have wanted this." Yeah. Which is what the socialists and the statists do with the with the social contract idea. What they're saying is you and I have to be part of this social contract. We have to pay taxes to the government. We're part of the American Union, whatever. Because because we would have agreed to it, whatever that means. But we're saying we don't agree to it. We don't agree to it. You don't need to know what we would have agreed to. The idea of implicit consent is irrelevant there, okay? So the danger, the danger of implicit theory is not present in the case we're talking about because you just don't even resort to that. In the case of a child, you do. The child cannot speak for themselves. Someone has to speak for the child if you care for the child at all, if the legal system is going to recognize the child at all. And the only rational answer can be that… At least as a first approximation, as a prima facie answer, we assume that parents are the ones that are presumed to be the ones the child would want to speak for them and the ones that have the child's best interest at heart. That's the natural connection of humanity, Um, and so that's why the idea of implicit agreement, implicit contract in the case of the child is natural and unavoidable and does not imply anything… Um, that would trouble us as libertarians about the state or the social contract idea Um, in, in, in my opinion.
0: Okay. So that, that answers and brings up a lot of the points that I pretty much wanted to hit on. Would you be up for being on another episode where we kind of talked about, talk more about libertarian parenting? Love to love
1: to do it. I enjoyed it. And sorry, we had to cut it short, but Hey, 45 minutes is a,
0: that's, it's a a pretty, pretty good good job. Yeah. yeah, A lot of people uh, to digest. So Stefan, where can people find most of your work?
1: Uh, Go to StephanKinsella.com, S-T-E-P-H-A-N, Kinsella.com, and uh, go to my publications page. You'll see stuff on Montessori and peace, and the article you mentioned, um, how we come to own ourselves, and other things.
0: And, of course, go to truthovercomfort.net to find everything else, and you all have a great day. Thank you.